listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belabored Episode 185. In this episode, we are talking with Callum Kant about his experience writing as a delivery worker. But first, the news. In a long-anticipated and long-dreaded move, the National Labor Relations Board finally brought down the hammer on graduate student workers. According to a new proposed rule issued by the Republican-dominated board, the teaching and research assistants, who help keep colleges and universities running, are now officially deemed students, not workers, under federal law. Under the Obama administration, the then-Democrat Majority Board ruled that graduate student assistants, who perform much of the teaching labor at private colleges and universities and a lot of the research as well, qualify as employees under the National Labor Relations Act, and that means that they could organize unions and collectively bargain for a fair contract. That window of opportunity for organizers was short-lived, however, and now the Trump administration's National Labor Relations Board seeks to explicitly exclude graduate student workers from employee status and, by extension, strip their collective bargaining rights. The rulemaking, which is now in the public comment period, deals a huge blow to the movement to unionize graduate workers, which we have covered repeatedly and belabored. Although graduate workers at public state schools have long been allowed to unionize and collectively bargain under state labor laws, private universities like Columbia and the New School have been struggling for years to organize student workers and seek recognition of their unions by their administrations. It is technically still possible for some graduate workers' unions to seek voluntary recognition from their administrations, as NYU graduate students did a few years ago. But still, this is an uphill battle. I spoke with Matthew Taft, co-chair of the Duke University Graduate Students Union, about the ramifications of this rulemaking. His union has actually decided to forgo the official NLRB union election process after an attempted vote was upended in 2017 when the university challenged hundreds of ballots. Today, they focus on running issue campaigns and organizing for collective action, even without official recognition from their employer. In the short term, we will be mobilizing with grad unions across the country to make sure that the perspective of grad students is heard in this NLRB process. So they'll have to go to the open comment, an open comment um, period of time after this ruling comes down on Monday. And with that being the case, we'll mobilize to provide comments from graduate unions all across the country to ensure that our perspective is heard. And if necessary, we'll take bold, direct action to ensure that that is the case, to ensure that graduate student voices are heard in this as this decision is being made. Grad unions aren't going to suddenly stop organizing across the country. They'll continue to organize and continue to try to improve the lives of graduate students, and they will do that outside the NLRB process. That provides absolutely certain difficulties and obstacles in as much as we don't have formal bargaining rights, but also provides certain opportunities to try to introduce different modes of, of participation and engagement at the level of rank-and-file membership of a union that allows to produce change in different ways. Does this mean that you might organize a a strike even if you don't have a formal collective bargaining rights? Uh, A a strike is absolutely like a possibility, I think, that is always on the table. Of course, it's not always the, you know, it's not always an action you want to take or that is right to take and there's certain conditions that would have to be met before that occurred. But anything from a strike to you know, to, to protest, to rallies, to sit-ins, to withholding grades are all options that that graduate unions have um, outside of an NLRB process, absolutely. This proposed rule change should not be viewed in isolation and must be understood as part of a broader attempt by the Trump administration 
to undermine workers' rights across the country from workers in higher ed, graduate students, adjunct faculty, to people working in the gig economy, to home care workers. That was Matthew Taft, co-chair of the Duke University Graduate Students Union. The GM workers are still on strike as we record this episode after 18 days on the picket lines, and one of the issues in bargaining is that of shuttered plants around the country. One of those plants is the famous Lordstown, Ohio facility, where in the 1970s, wildcat strikes were the norm. I visited Lordstown last spring after it was closed by GM and spoke to some of the workers there. You heard from Chucky Dennison, who I met in Lordstown recently on the show, and this week I checked in with Tim O'Hara, the Lordstown local, about the strike, the role of Lordstown and shuttered plants in general, and how this strike is a battle not just for the present, but for the future of GM and of the union. So we spoke a while ago when I was in Lordstown, but tell me what is going on right now with the GM strike and what are you sort of seeing over the last week or so on the picket lines? Well, we are in kind of a unique situation at our plant because... You know, we got shut down in March, so most of our members have either cut ties with the company because they didn't want to transfer transfer, or they have actually left the area for plants in other states. Mm-hmm. So when we went on strike, you know, we were under direction from the international to still pick at the plant, mm-hmm. even though basically there's nothing going on there at yeah. the moment. Yeah. And, uh... So we've been using volunteers in our strike, which is different from a normal strike where people, you know, actually sign up. They have designated times and everything like that. But we've been getting through it. We've also been using our retirees. Mm -hmm. And amazingly, we've had a lot of our members who perform picket duty at their new locals in whatever state they're in. They're actually coming back to Local 1112 and volunteering on the picket lines there as well. So how is morale on the picket lines? How, what are you hearing from people around the country as this goes on? Well, you know, in our case, even before GM announced that they were going to unallocate our plant, we knew that our fate depended on these negotiations because they had already said a couple of years ago they didn't have another product after the cruise was done. Mm-hmm. Now, the cruise was supposed to run until 2021, yeah. okay, but they kind of pulled the plug plug on it way before that, which put, put us in this situation. So, you know, for our people, like, this is kind of it for them. Now, whether we get another product out of the negotiations, we don't know yet. I know yeah. that's one of the issues that's on the table in Detroit, Yeah. Um, not just for Laura's time, but for the other plants that were unallocated as well so it's kind of a wait and see game right now and um you know it doesn't appear that they're close the international put a letter out yesterday saying that gm did come up with another proposal for some different um issues but the international turned it down so they're still talking up there Yeah, I get the sense that, you know, among membership all over the place that there's just been a lot of built-up frustration with GM that finally is sort of seeming to spill over in this. Well, the strike's kind of been coming for a long time. I kind of made the comparison to the Godfather movie where Clemenza, the character, says that, you know, every so often the five families go to war because they got to get rid of the bad blood, right? So, you know, this has kind of been building up 
ever since GM came out of bankruptcy, right? You know, they're kind of still acting like they're on the verge of bankruptcy, yeah. even though they've been making billions of dollars like the last several years. So, and this contract, like, is it's 2019, right? So we're negotiating for things in the present. But I think from the UAW's perspective, it's also looking 10 years into the future, mm-hmm. you know, 15 years into the future, because if electric cars do become the norm, right? So, you know, places that build like engines, places that build transmissions, mm-hmm. you know, those facilities are going to end up losing their jobs because electric vehicles don't use those parts, right? So, you know, if if the jobs that are future or the jobs like GM's proposing, I think, like, you know, $15, $17 an hour jobs, where are these people going to go to when they lose their jobs at these component plants because electric cars don't use these parts? So, you know, it's, there's a lot of different dynamics playing out here. I mean, we're negotiating for things that we feel are fair for us now, but I think both sides are actually looking down the road, like, you know, where are we going to go with this electric cars and how's it going to affect the UAW and, you know, what kind of jobs are going to be for people? It certainly seems like there is some patience within the union to, to fight this out for a while longer, yeah? Yeah, I I think uh, I think a lot of people are kind of surprised that on day seventeen. I mean, even maybe some of our own people thought maybe it might go on for a week, and you know, then they would settle. But like I say, I think both sides are looking at long term mm-hmm. strategy here. Like it's not just about today; it's about the future as well. Whatever comes out of this contract, I mean, it could determine a lot of different things. So and of course, GM, you know, they've been preparing for this. They have a lot of uh, vehicles stocked up, and they have a lot of money, obviously. But on the other hand, we've been, you know, we were telling our people two years ago, you know, it, it looks like they're going to be coming for concessions, so there could be a strike. So, you know, prepare financially, but not everybody's able to do that. Some people live paycheck paycheck paycheck, and... Yeah. You know, they're getting strike pay, which is $250 a week. Um, obviously, that's not the same as they were making working 40 hours, but right. it helps. And everybody's holding tight right now because I think they understand that, you know, this is kind of a defining moment. That was Tim O'Hara of the UAW in Lordstown, Ohio. The Chicago Teachers Union just voted to authorize a strike, and it's gearing up for a potential reprise of its monumental 2012 strike. This time around, however, the teachers are facing a new, untested administration, and they're trying to broaden their scope by organizing in solidarity with the support staff, represented by SEIU, as well as local parks employees. That would create a major disruption and show just how deep the crisis runs in the city's public sector workforce. I caught up with teacher and CTU activist Kenzo Shibata just after the union set a strike date of October 17th. This strike is also unique in the sense that it would be three, you know, different but related workforces striking together, right? Yes. Uh, so, yeah, the Chicago Teachers Union um, will be uh, possibly going on strike. And we set a strike date that matches up with um, SEIU Local 73. They represent a lot of the teachers' aides and other workers in the buildings. So uh, this would be a, a huge undertaking. Um, and, and it would be um, not every single member in the building on strike, but definitely like um, a good portion of them. 
Like if SEIU 73 went on strike alone, um, they would definitely, that definitely would have an impact on the schools. Uh, our schools wouldn't have these, the teacher's aides that we need. Um, it's particularly the ones that are represented by SEIU 73. Um, they work with the most vulnerable students. Uh, they are tasked with toileting and assisting them in the classroom. So uh, they are crucial uh, to the success of our, of our schools. And then the third union is our park districts union. Um, the park districts are one of the greatest places for our for kids to go. You know, my own kid this past summer did um, a summer summer camp program in the park district. It's cheap. The workers are great. Um, there's an educational experience and it's a good exercise. Um, so sometimes the school board likes to rely on the park district when strike when teacher strikes happen for daycare. That might not be a possibility this time around um, if we're all out at the same time. So um, are there risks inherent in that? Some parents might have trouble if they if the school is um, out due to a strike and uh, they also can't take their kids to the park. <laughs> As a parent myself, um, you know, I'll be put in a bind. But I think right now, really, it's in the, the balls in the court of the board right now to negotiate over, you know, all the things that we're asking for. And um, we're asking for uh, not only raises that we've, we've earned, but also um, we want more nurses. You know, some schools share a nurse with three, four other schools. Uh, we want more social workers. Some schools are also sharing social workers with other schools. So the student has a crisis when they, you know, they might not be able to see the proper adult. They might have to wait a day or two. Um, so I think that's something worth fighting for. Um, and I'm willing to make any kind of sacrifices that need to be made um, to ensure that, you know, my son and my students have a nurse in the school every single day. Part of the problem is that we work for a district that governs um, with everything as a crisis. Like every year um, they announce budget shortfalls. And, you know, our schools are never have the resources they need. Um, and every year it's like the sky is falling. And so we, we do have to um, both, you know, hold on to what we have, uh, but also try to make those gains. Uh, one thing that made 2019 so different from 2012 is that we're actually operating with more money uh, than before um, because of the changes in state funding formulas um, and changes in a few other ways that uh, we fund schools. You know, we're looking at, um, almost a billion dollars more um, in the budget this year as opposed to previous years. Um, and then there's also the fact that the um, in Chicago, we have this thing called TIF districts, where if a neighborhood is like rapidly gentrifying, the tax base is frozen at a certain at a certain level. And then any additional money that comes in once you know property taxes raised in that area goes into the slush fund for the mayor. And we're looking at about 800 million there. So we're looking at, you know, quite a bit of money that could be used to, you know, properly staff our schools this time around. Um, so things are different, I would say, this, this time. Um, but, yeah, we have been doing a lot of, you know, trying to hold on to what we have for, for so long to um, what they're trying to do to us there <laughs> at this moment. Like, we're definitely keeping a watchful eye out and looking at policies. But, um, you know, our fight right now really is with, with the mayor and the school board. Mm -hmm. There were recently um, charter school strikes. Has the dynamic around charters changed uh, with respect to how CTU organizes? Definitely. Um, you know, with the, the charter schools, um, you know, CTU initially um, didn't really get involved with organizing new members, as you know, aside from like the members that are in the, the already organized buildings. Um, and 
the, the charter school organizing program was operated uh, mostly from our national union um, and also from our state federation. Um, what had happened in, 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 a, uh, in the past couple of years is that our charter school units have merged with the Chicago Teachers Union, so we're all members of CTU AFT Local 1. Um, so we are all, you know, have member, we all have the same representation. Well, I'm sorry, we all have representation on, in the House of Delegates and on the executive board. Um, so what that's done, um, and it wasn't an easy process, was it got people to start realizing that we are all teachers and school workers. You know, we all have the same goals. You know, we all want our students to succeed um, and to be healthy, happy individuals. Um, and really, to the charter versus public that has to do with who our boss is and who, you know, signs our checks. And, you know, we are really much stronger united and we have way more in common than we do um, have uh, different. I don't know if you have a sense of if there is a strike, how close you are to, I guess, clinching a deal or is it sort of like things are wide open right now? Well, the problem that we have, so we last week um, we announced our 94 percent strike votes. Uh, right before going into uh, negotiations, an all-day negotiation session with the Board of Education. And they presented us with a serious proposal, the first one in a very long time, like that strike vote definitely got to them. Um, but as we were flipping through there, there was no solid language about more nurses, about more social workers, all of these support workers that are desperately needed in the schools. Um, we weren't being listened to. You know, they offered us, a serious proposal, but not a proposal about the things that we're, we're talking about. Um, so it's almost as if, like, they're daring us to go out and strike, that they're, um, they're, they're really pushing us into this corner. So it's really hard to, to say how close we are or how far we are because they aren't even having a conversation about, you know, what's going on in our classrooms. Is there anything else you wanted to add? You know, I just want to add that um, – it's been really amazing the amount of solidarity we've seen. Um, the Chicago ESA has done a great job of canvassing local businesses by schools um, and working towards getting some solidarity there. Like, nothing is better for a teacher than, like, you know, you're getting your morning coffee in the corner store and you see a sign that says, you know, we stand with teachers. Um, and they're also working to getting, you know, food out on the line and also, of course, if, you know, if we end up doing, end up going out on strike. Uh, between now and then, a deal can be reached and all this can be averted. So really the board could make this stop right now. And we're hoping that happens, but if not, we are ready. That was Kenzo Shibata talking about the potential strike on October 17th by the Chicago Teachers Union. I am still in the UK as of this recording, although I will be back by the time you, our dearest listeners, hear it. And one of the reasons I was here was to cover the Labor Party's annual conference and to speak at the World Transformed, a leftist festival that runs concurrently and where ideas have percolated that have made their way from left-wing activists' heads into Labor Party policy. This year in particular, ideas from the grassroots were successfully voted into Labor's platform that include a resolution for a Green New Deal, which includes a target to decarbonize the UK economy by 2030, a freedom of movement resolution that calls for expanding free movement, closing immigration detention centers, and giving migrants access to social services and voting rights. Labor members also voted to abolish private schools, creating a universal system of public education, and perhaps most pertinent for our podcast listeners, to move to a shorter working week. Specifically, Shadow Chancellor John McDonnell, in his speech to the conference, said that Labor would pledge to move to a 32-hour or four-day work week within a decade. 
Our regular listeners will remember at the beginning of the summer in episode 177, where I spoke with Will Strong of Autonomy, an independent UK think tank that has helped to popularize the idea of the shorter working week, as well as helped companies try to actually move to one. And it was the work of grassroots activists like him, the Labour four-day week campaign, and the backing, importantly, of the Communications Workers Union, which represents Royal Mail postal workers, that brought the issue to Labour's platform. The CWU has long been fighting for shorter working hours for its members, especially as technology has changed the nature of their work, and for a major union to back shorter hours policy meant this demand had extra weight at the conference. As I wrote at the Progressive after the conference, the U.S. has a long history as well of shorter hours movements, from the eight-hour day strikes to more recent struggles for control over working time. And as we look at the rise of precarious labor, the gig economy, and other forms of contingent work, it's clear that questions of time and control over it are once again at the center of workers' struggles. What would it take to once again make shorter working hours, importantly, of course, with no loss in pay, which the Labor Party has also pledged, a central demand of the labor movement? What would it mean for us us to once again conceive of work as something we do, as McDonald said, in order to live rather than living to work? The Labour Party is facing a looming general election and divisive battles over Brexit policy, but it's policies like a shorter working week, a three-day weekend that give people something to get excited about, a reason to get out and fight for a Labour victory. What's it actually like to work in the gig economy and to organize against it? A new book explores just that topic in great detail. As its author, friend of the show Callum Kent, spent a while as a Deliveroo bicycle courier, schlepping food up and down the hills of Brighton, England, alongside other students, migrant workers, and the regular denizens of the gig economy. In his book, Riding for Deliveroo, Callum documents becoming part of the organizing that has led to rapid-fire viral strikes against the company, strikes that are continuing this past month. Callum and I sat down in London for a long chat about the book, platform capitalism, organizing gig workers via WhatsApp, and why platform co-ops alone won't solve the problems of the gig economy. Tell us a little bit about um, working at Deliveroo and how it became your book. So I ended up working at Deliveroo after I'd um, finished at uni, and I was working in an office job, uh, quite a soul-destroying office job. Um, And then one day uh, in August of 2016, these huge spontaneous strikes exploded in London. Um, So at first it was just Deliveroo, then it was Uber Eats as well. Um, And we started just basically to see these massive mobilizations where a couple of hundred couriers would ride through the streets in these huge convoys that arrive in front of the head offices. Uh, There's an incident that, you know, makes up the preface of the book where they actually surrounded and humiliated Dan Warren, who's the uh, um, UK uh, and Ireland director of operations. Um, and this incredible show of kind of a political energy didn't come from, we weren't expecting it, yeah. right? It wasn't from an expected source. It wasn't from a well-unionized industry. It wasn't from a union, uh, an industry with a, a history of work and militancy, but kind of exploded onto the scene in a way that I think forced everyone to take um, a second look at platform capitalism because many of us uh, kind of wrongfully had assumed some of this stuff about decentralization and the lack of potential power and, you know, these workers are beaten down and this is kind of, this does undermine the capacity for worker resistance. And I had bought into that. Um, and suddenly that seemed to be not true anymore. Um, and so I got on the phone to some trade unionists in London. I chatted to them. I was like, what's it look like? What's it actually like on the ground? Is it as incredible as the photos and, and video show? And yes, the answer seemed to be it was that incredible. Um, <laughs> And then, of course, I'd been uh, Googling over and over again, like Deliveroo, Uber Eats, looking for as much information as I could find on these companies. 
Um, so as soon as I then went back to scrolling Facebook while sitting in this terribly alienating office job, what did I get but loads and loads of adverts for work for Deliveroo. <laughs> um, and I still had, you know, I'd been at uh, university um, just previously and I had some debt left over to pay off from that. I needed some more money, like this job didn't pay very well. So I was like, well, it seems like a golden opportunity. <laughs> and I decided to, to sign up in Brighton, uh, where I was living at the time. There was at the start of a huge wave of recruitment um, where loads and loads of new workers were being brought on. So I took my bike along and I, I kind of got started. Um, and that's really the genesis from where the book comes from. It was kind of a, a mix of uh, an overtly thought of, you know, intervention and overtly thought of works inquiry. And also, you know, I just needed some work. Um, and the process of, of discovery that came after that was, um, you know, it's probably one of the most exciting political experiences I've ever had. Excellent. We'll get into a lot of those details. But um, so first, talk about um, platform capitalism and why is it important to sort of understand what a lot of people probably think of as gig economy this way? So I think there are two very easy ways to talk about platform capitalism, which is first is everything is different and the other is everything's still the same, right? Like you can either say, uh, you know, the reorganization of work using these kind of digital technologies fundamentally transforms the way in which, you know, we think about work and, you know, this is actually the, the digitariat or the precariat or the cognitariat or some other area. Um, or one could very easily say, uh, you know, fundamentally the social relations here of those of, uh, you know, labor and capital, um, this is fundamentally still the capitalist mode of production. It can, we can just theorize it in exactly the same way. I don't think either of those is actually the correct approach to take because I think what we have to do is understand the specific ways in which the technology of platforms is transforming the class composition of our contemporary capitalism. And it's really just like modulating the longer standing social relations of exploitation upon which kind of the whole mode of production is founded. So for me, the importance of platform capitalism is that it's kind of a laboratory on the front end of this development. So certain forms of digital technology are being used here to reorganize work in a way that I think is not only indicative of um, kind of the direction of travel of capitalist development, but also gives us opportunities to learn right on the front edge lessons that can then be reapplied elsewhere in, in capitalism. So the assembly line, I think, is an interesting precursor tech to this, where the assembly line um, is first used in Boston in, in textile manufacture way before it's used by like the Ford Motor Company, right? Um, if someone at the time of you know looking at textile work in Boston had looked at this and drawn some conclusions about the assembly line that had then been generalised in advance of you know the Ford Motor Company generalising that um, in Detroit or whatever to you know the big auto industry. You can learn lessons earlier in a point of capitalist development that can then be applied later, right? You can get out in front of this stuff somehow. Um, so I think for me, that's really the political significance of this stuff, is that even if at the moment, um, you know, you still work with a, a conventional employment contract, if you work with a human supervisor and the rest of it, the indications in terms of development here is that we're traveling in one direction. This is the automation of low-level supervision and the increasing platformization of all labor within the economy. Not because it's a fundamental transition, because it's a reorganization of the way that capitalism operates. So let's talk a little bit about the organization of work at Deliveroo then. You mentioned that they were, that when you started off, it was the beginning of a big recruitment drive for students, and you talk a little bit about the different, two different parts of the workforce, right? So I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, so um, the workforce, when I got involved, I kind of expected, the adverts you get given on social media, obviously, are showing like young people in like hip cycling jerseys, they're, they're all making £12 an hour, apparently, um, and you know, they are almost exclusively like young, fashionable hipsters, basically. The reality of the job is obviously very different. Um, so actually, the majority of people doing the majority of deliveries 
um, or the people who do the majority of deliveries rather, are mostly migrant workers on mopeds. Now, if you think about it, this is a really obvious thing. No cyclist can work for eight hours a day unless that. Yeah, I mean, some cyclists can. I can't. So, um, so <laughs> if you yeah, so if you're going to do um, hundreds and hundreds of deliveries um, every hour all over a city, you're going to be relying on people who aren't just using straight human power because human powered people get knackered out basically, right? Um, so mopeds are a really important part of how they actually deliver their services. And there are a core of people who are working anywhere between 40, 60, 80 hours a week um, on mopeds who really make up the fundamental heart of these platforms. Um, so they're, you know, as I said, mostly migrants. They've often got families to support. They put a lot of financial investment in, often because they're buying these mopeds month by month on like a higher purchase scheme, which means they constantly have to keep on working. Um, and they're doing the bulk of the work. And then kind of in addition to that, you have this other part of the workforce, which is, you know, maybe um, kind of larger in raw numbers, but does a smaller percentage of the work, which is the part of the workforce I, I was part of, which is kind of the younger student or like, you know, um, precariously employed uh, cyclist base. Um, so those were, you know, people who were just looking to make some extra money on the side, might be working anywhere between, you know, uh, five and 20 hours a week, um, who would do a much smaller proportion of the deliveries. And really what was interesting, these two groups existed almost in parallel structures, but also cooperating, right? So one of the big, um, I think, discoveries of this whole period of um, self-organization at platforms has been the way in which these different fractions, although they are markedly different fractions and have potentially alternative interests, so the app can be operated in a way that gives an advantage to moped riders, for instance, um, which then means that moped riders are going to get more money because they're going to get more deliveries. You're paid at a pure piece rate only per drop. Um, so there are all sorts of potential manipulations that could counterpose these factions to one another. But then also what I found incredible was that despite the, you know, often the lack of a common language, the lack of you know, common life experiences, the completely different reference in terms of um, you know, cultures around self-organization and organizing at work, these workers could come into an alliance. Um, and that, I think, was profoundly inspiring and is the heart of why when these struggles really kick off, you have to look, is that coalition being made? And if it is, if the, you know, the, the moped workers and the cyclists are working together, then really there's a huge amount of potential power there. Yeah, um, and so you talk about the zone center as a sort of place where you're supposed to go while you're working. So you, it's almost like the shape up on the docks, which we'll get yeah, to the docks yeah, in a minute. Yeah. Um, but almost, you know, it's like a hiring hall when you go turn your app on, right? And you're yeah. supposed to sit around in the same place, but it also informally made it easier for organizing. So it's also like, um, there's a, you know, the Minneapolis Teamsters books from mm -hmm. like the 30s. They yeah. talk about the doghouse um, and how logistics workers used to work. So anywhere where you need uh, a big pool of surplus labor that can respond rapidly to requirements, you need a central like accumulation point for that labor. Yeah. Now, obviously, uh, with Deliveroo, um, this is just uh, a zone center in this kind of the middle of a city where they tell you to wait um, so you can get orders from restaurants. You know, they're, they're nearby. Um, now, that obviously, when there was a lot of work, we didn't spend a lot of time there. We were all pinging around the city. And for the first couple of months I worked at Deliveroo, you were just spending the whole time going from drop to drop to drop to drop. And you could make 12 quid an hour. It could be an all right job. But as soon as that slowed down, people started to spend much more time at these zone centers, which informally created these organizing hubs. Because from having you know a few people going from delivery to delivery, you suddenly had 30 to 40 people waiting around, angry they weren't having any work, and, and just ready to organize, right? And so they were ready-made within the labor process. You know, apparently we were all disconnected, we were all decentralized, but in reality, we would all clump together whenever we were all pissed off, which created an explosive dynamic. You didn't have to do very much in that environment to suddenly convince people that organization was worth thinking about, that action should be taken. Because we were all sitting around and because there was no guaranteed 
minimum hourly wage, right. you were literally earning nothing in the time you were there. Yeah, so Deliveroo's sort of strategy of overhiring, hiring, with big air quotes around it, um, of over supply of labor actually yeah. blew up in its face. Yeah. Absolutely, because I mean, if you've got um, people who are trying to work, I mean, it's a really weird feeling. I've never had before. I've never worked on a piece rate before. I've done bad jobs where you know you're paid minimum wage or whatever. But the particular feeling of attempting to work—it's like that Marx quote, right? Like there's, you know, to, to sell your labor is a misfortune, but to try and sell it and be unable to is even worse, yeah. whatever it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's a very interesting part of this whole structure. Um, so you talk a little bit actually about the wage structure because there were places that they started with an hourly wage and then some fee per drop and then it switched to pure piece rate and then they would mess with the piece rates. So obviously because you don't have a contract of employment, right. um, you are formally... We don't know what those are in a minute. Yeah. <laughs> What's a contract of employment? Uh, so because you're not technically an employee, you're technically right. self-employed. Right? We do know this. I just like to make jokes yeah. about contracts of employment because lol, what are those? Um, Anyway. But there's no requirement that you have to sign if they change your, your fundamental conditions, right? Mm -hmm. So you don't have to sign a change in your um, pay rates or whatever. Yeah. Uh, they can do whatever they want, uh, completely manipulate it, entirely control um, your conditions on their side with no requirement that you comply or, or yeah. agree. Um, so that meant they had a huge amount of flexibility when designing wage structures. Right. So when they started, usually because there wouldn't be many orders in a city when delivery just set up, yeah. they'd usually pay a base rate, which would be you know somewhere between six and eight pounds an hour plus one pound per delivery, um, and that would just be a way of accumulating a workforce at first. Often, you know, so somewhere like um, they tried to expand at some points into the most bizarre cities, like properly economically depressed areas like Teesside, where. I don't think there was ever going to be a market. And they were basically just paying a load of teenagers on bikes, six pounds an hour, which is substantially yeah. below minimum wage, yeah. just to sit around in the city centre. And there were yeah. no deliveries at all. Yeah. Um, so they'd use these flexibilities in local labour markets to kind of set what the rate was. But once they got a certain market going, once they had a certain volume, they'd switch purely to piece rate. So that, you know, um, this is not a new tactic. This is, uh, you know, as old as, as capitalism itself, because you only pay for the work done. It's, it's the form that capitalists will always prefer if they can get away with it. Um, and piece rates basically meant that um, you were just getting paid per delivery. There was a set amount of work to be done, right. so they could oversupply on labor and it wouldn't have any impact. Right. Now, this kind of radicalized workers yeah. because there really was this potential of falling entirely out of being paid altogether. Right. Like if things went badly wrong, you could be earning two pounds an hour. After cost, two pounds an hour is zero pounds an hour, yeah. right? Um, so for a lot of people, there was a sense of desperation and anger created by this piece rate system that hadn't existed beforehand. And because you weren't guaranteed the minimum wage, even the very basic, you know, you can barely survive on the minimum wage in the UK anyway. But even that basic layer of like access to the means of subsistence was no longer guaranteed. One other thing that I thought was very interesting was you mentioned that like, because your delivery, the delivery drivers aren't working for the restaurants where you're picking up the food, the managers at the restaurants feel totally free to take it out on you because they may never see you again, whatever, they'll just get another person the next time. Um, which is just an interesting thing that's like sort of inbuilt into the structure of that for use. Yeah, well, I mean, if a manager's having a bad day, uh, you are the perfect person to take it out on because you're going right. to turn up into the kitchen and be chucked out 30 seconds later. They right. can just give you an earful. And if you complain, they'll just straight on the app. I've seen yeah. managers do it to workers before. They'll straight on the app and ban you from ever picking up from that restaurant ever again. Yeah. And that might lead to your termination of, uh, you know, working for delivery anyway. Um, so there's a huge amount of power dissymmetry there. Right. And also, you know, potentially tension between two different groups of workers. Right, exactly. So 
the time you spend waiting in a restaurant, if you turn up, say, uh, you know, there's one particularly bad place in Brighton when I was working there. Um, it's an Indian restaurant and they did all their orders um, up a hill into Hove to quite fancy uh, townhouses, basically. And the, the curry, like eating there costs like £20, which, yeah. you know, for people who have never eaten an Indian in, in the UK, it's like six or seven pounds yeah. is, is yeah. standard. Um, so it was a fancy place. And they would basically bring you into the kitchen really early yeah. because they want you to go as soon as the food is ready. And yeah. they thought by calling you 10, 15 minutes early, they would actually be improving the quality of their service to customers. Right. Of course, what they were doing is they're meaning that for 15 minutes, you're not doing any other orders. Right. So they're bringing down your hourly wage. Right. I actually waited there once for 45 minutes. That's the kind of, so if you're getting four pounds of delivery, if you're waiting for 45 minutes in the restaurant kitchen, you're earning four pounds an hour. If that's an evening peak hour, you know, if that's during the dinner rush, you want to be earning 12 pounds an hour that hour in order to make up the hours you've worked that are four pounds yeah. earlier in the day, right? So there's an incredible amount of tension there where the speed of food production directly impacts on your potential hourly wages. And sometimes this could lead to confrontation because kitchen workers, you know, they weren't necessarily the ones calling you early, yeah. but they were the ones who were directly, you know, I need to get the food and go now. Yeah. But there was also potential for solidarity there. Yeah. Um, I think that potential for solidarity was much more explored than that potential tension because fundamentally workers understood themselves to be in roughly the same boat, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, because, you know, I've worked in kitchens, it's not very nice. Right, yeah. You've got people standing the other side of the pass, sweating horribly, mm -hmm. um, being shouted at by whatever, like yeah. little Mussolini is attempting to run a kitchen at that time. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, it's not that different from being the waiter who has to go in back in the kitchen when your customer at the table has said, um, you know, I don't like this, recook this. Yeah, exactly. And, Chef is like, <laughs> uh, yeah. Can you tell I worked in the service industry for a while? Uh, although before the app era, because I'm old. Uh, yeah, yeah. So it is an interesting space though, because it does put you in contact with workers who are potentially supportive if you have a strike, which we will get get to strikes. Yeah. So I think one of the most fascinating developments we saw was this. Uh, so with Uber Eats, right? Yeah. Uh, as a as a platform service, it works primarily off delivering from McDonald's. Yeah. Uh, so most cities in the UK, they'll have got their second after Deliveroo. Deliveroo will have signed kind of exclusive contracts with a restaurant that you'll only mm -hmm. deliver through Deliveroo. Yeah. So when Uber Eats turn up, they basically end up like, we've got a contract with McDonald's that we agreed on, a, on an international scale and yeah. we, we don't really bother with many of the local restaurants. Yeah. Um, so 85, 90% of deliveries, certainly in Brighton, we were just doing from McDonald's. Um, so in that case, there wasn't a, an official zone centre, but the McDonald's became the zone centre. Everyone was always waiting in a queue to one side yeah. uh, to, you know, pick up the food. Or if they weren't waiting, there they're waiting on the street outside um, so it wasn't uncommon you'd see you know again groups of 30 to 40 people waiting outside McDonald's yeah. now because you were constantly working from one restaurant rather than being dotted all over the city you start to develop a relationship with the people behind the counter yeah. um, so you know I used to always think when I was doing shifts um, for Uber Eats um, which was towards the end of the time working for platforms yeah. I would like be doing orders and I'd be constantly in and out of the restaurant um, hopefully two or three times an hour for the course of a shift um, and you would see the same people working there the entire time. And people who worked, you know, moped workers who worked consistently would have, like, good friendly relationships with them. They'd have banter or, yeah. you know, they'd know each other. Some of them often, you know, a Romanian migrant behind the counter speaks to a Romanian uh, migrant delivery worker and they'd be chatting in, you know, Romanian backwards and forwards. Um, and this relationship was potentially supportive and also happened at the same time as the McStrike stuff was going on. Right. Um, so the Baker's Food and Workers Union um, had been attempting quite an aggressive strategy going after kind of fast food in the model of like Fight for yeah. 15. Yeah, we've actually had Ian Hudson on our oh, podcast cool. before too. Um, so yeah, Ian's lot. 
um, were doing really good work working with McDonald's workers at the same time. And there was some interesting stuff with the IWW, um, who were one of the major um, forces behind Courier organising in the UK, um, ended up putting out statements in solidarity with McDonald's workers. We had kind of, when we got to October, or was it 2018, 2017? Um, we had uh, kind of like joint pickets outside these restaurants. There was the potential for industrial cooperation there. It never quite got expanded to the point and still hasn't got expanded to the point that it could be. You know, that potential for solidarity is still largely potential. But I think there were industrial connections that could, that could really be exploited. Yeah. Also, it was interesting that um, you noted that a lot of the, the same workers are on Uber Eats and Deliveroo. And yeah. so when you strike one company, you necessarily end up striking both companies. Yeah. So if you're struggling to get enough orders off one app, obviously you're going to download both and have them both on at the same time. Um, that means that you're basically trying to manage the demands of two algorithmic managers at once. So you've got yeah. one person saying go to this part of the city, one person saying go to this part of the city. I could never quite hack it. I was very bad at doing it. But some of the more skilled riders could yeah. manage to, to run both at the same time. Um, and there is this real interweaving where, you know, the, there are talks at a high level between Uber Eats and Deliveroo about, you know, Uber Eats potentially buying Deliveroo. Yeah. And there's a tendency, obviously, towards concentration in these platforms because right. they're, they're intensely competing. And, right. you know, when they're dropping out, they are in, increasingly concentrating. Yeah. So you're almost creating this one unified platform workforce where despite the fact that you're officially working different platforms, you're basically, there's a pool of what I would termalize, you know, that they're micro-logistics workers, right? There's a pool of micro-logistics workers who work for however many platforms. And actually, the individual distinction of are you an Uber, do you have an Uber Eats bag or a Stuart bag or a Glovo bag or an Eat Caviar bag, that doesn't necessarily matter so much. In a lot of contemporary urban environments, there is a platform workforce. Yeah. yeah. So I want to talk about um, algorithmic management, but... You mentioning that made me want to go here because um, one of the things about these companies is they're all operating a loss. Yeah. They are not making any money. In many cases, they're losing massive amounts of money because they're just being flooded. They're just running off of venture capital. Yeah. So even when they're flexing with your wages, they're still losing money. And that that is related to this strategy of you know trying to blanket the entire city to monopolize the markets. Uh, but well, we'll get to some other criticisms of that earlier uh, or later but I just wanted to sort of note that now as part of the strategy right that like when we're talking about these businesses and the way that they function they are massively subsidized by venture capital right yeah. now so they're not there's they have not had to figure out how to make money yet yeah I mean it's it's completely it's a hole for surplus capital that's basically what platform capitalism is I mean at the moment um, if you actually look at you know what these companies say publicly they say they are profitable in mature markets so like Uber Eats I can't remember the exact number but they say they're profitable in uh, in the tens of cities right Uh, delivery will be profitable in London right but the problem is that they are they're not obviously accepting we found like a small niche they they aspire to some kind of dominance where they are trying to expand everywhere like earlier I, I mentioned Teesside like Teesside is a is there is no market for a delivery platform there there's Just Eat must have barely be operating there when it was just a web platform right so there is really not they have these um, ambitions which are obviously funded by venture capital in terms of remodeling urban social reproduction that appear to go far beyond what is actually that what they're actually able to do right um, so their plans are mostly fantasy I mean there's a section towards the end of the book where I discuss like what delivery has been saying to investors about what they're going to do going forward uh, where they talk about you know we're going to automate kitchens we're going to run dark kitchens in the center of the city primarily automated they're going to automate delivery we're going to have these little pavement drones going along they're like shopping trolleys on on wheels with like anti-tamper devices and these are going to you know completely they're going to cut our costs by 50% they're going to cut the cost of the consumer by a third and we're going to just radically reshape people aren't going to eat at home anymore with food they 
cut themselves, blah, blah, blah. I mean, a lot of this is complete nonsense to try and convince venture capital not to panic and pull their money out. Yeah. But it does appear to me that you know, this, there's going to be a bubble explosion at some point here. And what yes. would be really fascinating is... Probably soon. Probably quite soon. <laughs> I mean, if the, you know, um, the bond curve um, inversion is anything to go by, yeah, we're probably yeah. looking down the barrel of another recession. Yeah. And during that period, I think it'll be a fascinating dynamic where none of these workers are guaranteed redundancy pay. Right. Delivery recently pulled out of Germany. There was like no official redundancy pay scheme. They offered them something if they signed a letter to say they'd never again sue the company for anything. Right. Mm-hmm. So there is potentially a workforce which, in certain parts of the UK, is in the tens of thousands. I mean, in London, the platform workforce is in the tens of thousands. Yeah. Tens of thousands of workers could be made redundant with absolutely no right to redundancy pay at all um, on the drop of a hat. Now, what that does politically, when the workforce is already partially organised, already has experiences of strike action during the middle of a recession, I think could be a, a really fascinating um, period going forward. Talking about algorithmic management, one of the things that I found very interesting about Deliveroo in particular is that they don't tell you where you're going until you pick up the food. Mm-hmm. That these sort of strategies for control built in are really interesting. So information dissymmetry is obviously a, right. a big part of this. Yeah. Um, so part of that is to prevent you um, saying that you don't want the order because it's too far away. Right. Um, they want you to accept all orders and then you just do what you do. So you wouldn't say no to an order that's three miles in order to get an order that's two miles or whatever. Yeah. Um, but it also operates on the, on the front of the restaurants. Like they, they changed, um, during the summer I was working there, they, actually, they changed the information they put in the receipt to hide the customer's location mm-hmm. from um, yeah. the restaurant so that the restaurant couldn't yeah. map their own customer base. Right. So that there's, they are well aware of the power of information and the way in which hiding it from workers and also competitor um, yeah. capitals can really increase their potential uh, ability to, to take rent in the, in the future. Now, I think that... Um, what's particularly fascinating is that you know there is this old dynamic when you look at the labour process, um, Taylorism uh, as kind of a, a strategy of managerial control that came out of the early 1900s. Um, it's primarily based on the idea, um, Frederick Winslow Taylor, that, that workers understand work and that we need to study them and their understanding of it as managers in order to learn how to intensify it. Right? This has a certain implicit dynamic where there's an informational hierarchy that exists organically within the labour process where workers understand the job better than managers and the managers have to descend to the level of the worker, study it sociologically and then you know, move back up to the level of designing the labour process in order to intensify it. The fascinating thing about um, the use of kind of a, a black box app that you can't see inside of right. um, and algorithmic management is that actually workers understand this process less well than the managers. Yeah. You're constantly being ordered around by a system you do not understand how it fundamentally operates, right? So this Taylorist dynamic where the workers implicitly understand more than the managers and that informational hierarchy has to be overcome through like sociological research is actually inverted entirely. And in algorithmic managed uh, workplaces, the actual the workforce that knows what's going on, their software designers in central office in London or New York or wherever. And that's actually the segment of the working class that has the technical knowledge of how this work is organized. And the actual workforce on the streets doesn't necessarily have that knowledge. Now, again, we're talking about potential alliances here because if software workers and delivery workers could join up, then that, you know, the information hierarchy could be used again uh, to the benefit of workers. But for the time being, as long as there remains that separation, the black box operates effectively the app effectively locks workers out of the knowledge of their own work process. Right. right. And so you have all sorts of changes to your work process that you don't know about. You mentioned sort of sitting in the zone center and noticing that somebody else is getting an order and you're not getting an order and wondering if that is in part retaliation. Um, there's all sorts of interesting things they can do and you don't have any control and you 
at least they assume you're not talking to each other. Yeah, and it produces a, a really interesting degree of, um, you know, there's a lot of literature if you look at, like, human resources. Uh, this notion of commitment is obviously really important to managers. So, you know, the, the goal isn't just to, um, after this guy called Elton Mayo uh, develops kind of human resources as we modernly know it, the discipline really exists because we can't just brutalise workers into just working all the time. No, you have to love it. Yeah, we have to like managerially control them and make them commit to the company. So we see that we're all a family of interests, yeah. that you know you need to form bonds with your managers. It's like, this is, you know, we have a community of interest here. Now that's what conventional capitalist employment kind of looks like. You, you notice these appeals if, you know, you're ever in a meeting and a, a manager says, look, we all need to meet our profit targets because, you know, we've got a common interest here or something, yeah. right? But with algorithmic capitalism, with algorithmically managed capitalism, this commitment literature kind of falls away. They have no means of maintaining your commitment yeah. because they're explicitly not letting you into how the system works. So yeah. it produces a very alienated workforce where, you know, you feel like you're being manipulated. It's okay. not, you know, abstractly, I'm aware of my exploitation, I'm producing stuff as value. It's like, no, literally, I can see that I'm being manipulated and not told the whole story. Right. So the example you mentioned is um, there was this pulse system that was meant to tell you how high... Um, like the, the number of orders that need to be delivered was, right? Yeah. So you can say, oh, do I need to work now or not? It's meant to be kind of like a dynamic indicator of labor demand. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was meant, I mean, it was at least presented to us as this was a universal indicator of labor demand. So right. if I have a high pulse, you should have high pulse. Right. Everyone's pulse should be saying, yes, come out and work. Yeah. But actually, when sitting in the zone center, we compare pulses, and I'd have very low, and you'd have high. And clearly, there's some kind of manipulation going on here. Clearly, we're not getting the same information. Right. Who that like the workers on the ground have no idea how that operates, yeah. right? And that's profoundly alienating, and that produces a workforce that's very willing to damage the company they work for because they see no community of interest with their managers. Yeah, I mean, it does all seem very much like a short-term shell game that's all going to collapse very soon. But you know, okay. so anyway, we've already talked about the coming recession. Um, but so the first strike that you write about at the beginning of the book was against a company that had its workers deported. Yes, um, so. Uh, obviously, in the UK, uh, we have uh, a border regime that is um, remarkable in its uh, brutality. Um, I mean, w- literally, the term hostile environment as a descriptor of your border regime, that's quite... Um, it's almost like the quiet part being said loud, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot, a lot of this has meant that we have a lot of uh, raids on workplaces where there are migrant workers uh, with the intention of removing people without permission to work. Now, that obviously, you know, on a theoretical level, that doesn't actually operate to control migration. It primarily operates to brutalise um, a certain segment of the workforce to prevent migrant workers attempting to claim minimum wage or, you know, the right to form trade unions and so on. But that functioned really in this case to actually kickstart the process of organization ended up with platform workers taking their first strike action that ended up with me then you know going and working for Deliveroo and that was because this this company called Byron Burgers um, they're just a, a standard slightly fancy 15 quid burger chain um, of the kind you, you know 10 a penny anywhere um, and they had uh, apparently a meeting on the proper cooking of burgers before a lunch shift um, and everyone was told they had to come in for this, even, you know, staff who didn't necessarily work cooking burgers. Everyone had to come to this meeting. Now, as soon as they turn up, um, a load of immigration enforcement officials come out and there's a full paper check and a load of workers end up getting deported. Now, we talked earlier about industrial solidarity. Who works very closely with these Byron Burger migrant workers in the kitchens? Well, it was the migrant workers who worked for Deliveroo. Yeah. Now, their immediate response was, all right, fine. If you're going to deport, you know, if Byron is going to team up with immigration enforcement to deport its own workforce, yeah. we're not going to do orders from Byron Burgers like we're just we're not going to do it now that 
ex- like boycott experience yeah. where workers were coordinating using WhatsApp groups, kind of invisible organisation networks, in order to um, fight back against the enforcement of a, a brutal, hostile environment. That laid the groundwork for what would then turn into a strike when, in London, uh, Deliveroo attempted to change the payment structure from £7 plus one per delivery to a pure piece rate. And that transition um, actually came when there was already a base layer of, of political organising, primarily around questions of migration. And from there, then the explosion took off. And, and, and that really started the process that we've now seen spread across um, Europe and the world. Yeah, so talk a little bit more about these WhatsApp groups and how sort of people were getting connected, um, how people were ending up in them, and um, how they go from sort of places to gripe to places to organize a strike. So when you turn up in a zone center and there are like 30 people sitting around, um, obviously you have there the, the IRL basis for like organization. Um, but workers aren't always hanging around like that. Quite often, you know, um, there'll be all sorts of other environments where you're meeting in kitchens or whatever. But a lot of the time you're not physically together. Now, workers who knew each other would set up these WhatsApp chats as kind of a matter of maintaining a friendship group, right? Or maintaining a, you know, common source of information about how delivery works. And they, these WhatsApp groups and Facebook groups primarily existed first and foremost just as um, playing like a, a social function, right? So an informal work group would form like a WhatsApp chat. So it's like all the cyclists in Brighton would have a WhatsApp chat. And on this, people would organize things like five-a-side football games. They would uh, share memes. They would chat about uh, oh, what's the weather forecast look like. They'd share, oh, there's a boost text. So, you know, if we go out this evening, we'll get um, extra money per delivery. They'd say, my brake lights have gone as they've got a spare pair. All this kind of stuff, which was just the, the ordinary um, process of, of solidarity, basically. But that embryonic solidarity in conditions where workers decide to collectively organize and take action could suddenly switch and turn these networks from just general multi-purpose informal work group networks into the scaffolding of a strike network, basically. So like if you have, say, 10 WhatsApp groups around the city, um, each with like a different little group of workers, say all the Brazilian workers are in this one, the moped riders, and these then link up and you start, so WhatsApp has a, a function for forwarding messages, right? So you'd usually get in one group, you get a strike message go out, then get forwarded to all the other groups, right? Yeah. So this is how in Brighton um, we actually first went on strike. Was um, We had a union organising meeting um, in the winter. Uh, I'd been working at the, the platform for a few months and I'd been working really hard to get this together and I was like, okay, this is going to be a slow grinding process. I think I know kind of how trade unionism works and it's not <laughs> it's not like a social movement where you just kick off whenever you want. Right? Yeah. It's not like I'd done student organising previously where we just, you know, we had like two meetings then tried to occupy the entire university or whatever. Yeah. Um, I was like, no, this has to be patient and methodolo- methodological and this is a bit more grown up and this is proper politics uh, and then uh, we had this this meeting with trade unionists uh, coming down from the IWGB we formed a trade union branch and we elected some reps and we're like right we're now going to start this slow process of organising um, and then immediately what happened was a group of Brazilian workers heard that we'd formed a trade union like oh now there's a syndicato now we can go on strike and so sent us WhatsApp messages saying okay we've called a strike for next week and we're like oh, <laughs> we had to respond to this um, because workers already had such strong networks of self-organisation yeah. they were capable of doing so yeah. um, and actually the trade union in that instance was more a facilitator of already existing networks than it was actually like organising those networks in the first place um, and so we were completely bypassed as a committee not in a bad way in a, an extremely exciting way but that spontaneous capacity for spreading organisation is common to lots of different struggles um, and it, it's happened everywhere where these platforms spread these WhatsApp chats formed off the initial meetings at zone centres turn into the scaffolding which then can launch collective action when changes occur in payment structures and stuff like that or when you know the number of orders per hour drops particularly low uh, what's fascinating is these structures can also be quite invisible to the workers themselves uh, so I give an example in the book of um, 
I think it was Southampton, where two different groups of workers attempted to go on strike basically at the same time. Half of them were migrant moped riders, half were cyclists. And because they had different WhatsApp chats, they had no idea they were both organising simultaneously. And so it was only when one saw the other one doing a demonstration, they were like, oh shit, there's another group of people trying to form a union here. Um, and this capacity also means it's completely invisible to uh, the platforms themselves. They have no surveillance architecture in cities. Like Often they won't even employ someone in the cities in which they operate. So they have no idea if workers are self-organising. So when this stuff explodes, because workers aren't technically uh, employed, they're not going through the rigmarole of strike ballots and all the other kind of restricted legalistic processes created by um, our you know, incredibly draconian uh, legal system. Instead, they're just taking collective action when it wants to take collective action. Every strike is a wildcat strike. And so this invisible organisation explodes in these things that appear to the outside to be spontaneous and, so, in fact, heavily self-organised, um, which I think are you know, characteristic of platform struggles. That's why platform struggles look the way they do. Yeah, because you... I mean, the, the labor law here is significantly different from the U.S. Yeah. in that you don't have to organize a majority at the workforce in order to join the union. But still, when you're not an employee, you still don't have any of those union rights, technically. Yeah. Um, so you talk a lot, of, um, you use a couple of examples of sort of historical uh, precarious worker organizing on the docks and whatnot, um, where, again, people realize that their lack of legal... Um, recognition could be a strength as well as a weakness. Yeah. Um, so I'd love for you to talk about that a little bit, the, the historical examples and the question of, of demands when organizing these workers, because a lot of people's reaction is, oh, we just need to become hourly employees, or the workers don't make that demand. Yeah. People from the outside and people from the trade unions think that that is the demand. So uh, docker struggles in the UK have kind of a totemic place, uh, because yeah. the dock strikes of... Uh, the late uh, 19th century really launched or part of launching alongside match girl strikes and the gas workers strikes a period called the new unionism where basically workers organised along industrial lines they had much more political um, uh, kind of inclination um, and socialism became the, the um, explicit goal of a large part of this, this renewed trade union movement now the docker strikes are fascinating for me because they are almost exactly like an allegory of a workforce that would turn up um, stand, uh, you know, sit in dockers' pubs or stand by the side of a quay and then be brought on in gangs uh, to do work. Um, and these workers were, you know, in many ways kind of the allegory for, for platform workers and they have no formal employment status, they have no guarantee of work every day. Um, and over time, it became increasingly obvious that this wasn't disempowering, they were highly militant workers. Um, and actually what they struggled for, so the first um, great drop, dock strikes in the UK were over the dockers' town. So it was over a regularised rate of pay, it wasn't necessarily over regularised empo- employment. Um, and over time, um, dockers in the UK became an increasingly militant workforce and one that really led um, the trade union movement. I mean, often, you know, they would, if their uh, union wouldn't uh, do what they want them to, they would en masse leave, set up another union, uh, completely sell out the bureaucrats, cause absolute chaos. Uh, I give a few examples in the book of just like strikes where um, there was one point. Um, uh, a load of dockers were on strike over recognition and ability to work on the docks um, for uh, workers who had split from one of the main unions and joined an alternative union, uh, which was perceived as more radical. Um, and at one point, the London workers, basically, they get recognised that they're allowed to work on the docks and they then vote, all right, we'll go back to work now. I mean, our, our comrades in the north, you know, they haven't got it, but, you know, kind of screw them. Yeah. At which point, the northern dockers say, all right, we're marching to London, we're going to force you to go back on strike. And the London workers probably hold another vote and go, okay, yeah, fine, we're back on strike. Um, so there's incredible history of militancy. And actually, it never... Um, 
stopped until the process of regularisation actually took place. Yeah. Workers were always precarious. There was a, a dock labour scheme introduced uh, post World War Two, where they basically had like holding employees where they could get paid a minimum rate of pay even yeah. when they weren't working. Yeah. But workers were never formally employed until the advent of containerisation um, and kind of the logistics revolution in the 70s and 80s led to the increasing necessity of controlling work militancy in the docks. And they were bought off with basically productivity deals and, and good employment conditions. But some workers, even at the time, recognised that their precarity had actually been their source of strength. The fact that they weren't um, regularly employed had been what had enabled them to fight um, over their conditions in the way they had fought over their conditions. Uh, and so there was actually a rank and file struggle against regularisation at that time. So I think it's, I'm wary now when we look at um, platform workers, often the demand is raised, as you say, from the outside, like, you know, full employment status is clearly what's needed here. But often actually talk to workers themselves. People understand that, you know, some people have these misplaced ideas um, that, you know, full employment status, we can't do it because it hurt the bosses or whatever, right? Yeah. But often it's about stuff like, actually, I don't want to have to work, uh, you know, a regular number of hours. I need the flexibility because I've got childcare responsibilities yeah. or whatever. And workers aren't sold on the idea that employment is a utopia they're fighting for, yeah. right? Being a fully employed worker is also pretty shit. And most of them have experiences of being fully employed. Yeah. Um, and they're not necessarily fighting just to retain that. Um, position. They, they actually want to fight for better conditions and, and dignity at work and a whole range of other issues, not necessarily employment status. Yeah. yeah, I think it's it's one of the challenges in a lot of ways that we're facing right now, politically, not that I'm writing a book about any of this, um, <laughs> that we think that the goal is a good job for everyone. Yeah. And there are a variety of reasons why that might not be the case. And so I think platform workers, the, the demands that they actually make when they're actually self-organizing are a really interesting place to explore that. Um, and the connections, since we're talking about childcare um, responsibilities and things, the various connections between these sort of delivery apps, um, what one Harvard Business Review article called the Internet of Stuff Your Mom Won't Do For You Anymore. Um, but, you know, the, the questions of social reproduction that, as you mentioned, that these things raise when you have an exhausted workforce ordering takeout from another exhausted workforce. Yeah. So I think the most fascinating part of this is if you look at the marketing of the delivery, it's actually uh, slightly changed since I wrote the book, which is as if they're intentionally trying to spoil this particular chapter. Um, they've got a deal with KFC where they did a load of advertising around fried chicken. But previous to that, which, which only happened about uh, six months ago, um, all the advertising was focused on these very exotic foods. Right. So you'd be looking at sushi or like pad thai or like, you know, something that you don't eat as like a takeaway meal regularly. It would never be just like a cheap curry that they put on or a cheap pizza or whatever. It would always be the fancy kind of hipster version of the food would always be the advertised reality yeah. because what they're trying to convey is that you know this is a, a high social capital you are a uh, urban consumer who wants to enjoy restaurant food yeah. but for some solidly unspoken reason you don't want to leave the house yeah. um, but you you know this is a, a high social capital uh, consumption opportunity um, the reality is that when you do these deliveries and you see who you're delivering to, yeah. it's primarily exhausted people ordering the cheapest thing on the menu, right? So the vast majority of deliveries we do, so for like Uber Eats, it's all McDonald's, or for delivery it would be, it'd be uh, KFC or really cheap pizza and pasta restaurants, right? The vast majority of food you're delivering is cheap staple foods to people who are hungover, um, are looking after children and don't have capacity to go to the shop, to people who are just like kind of a bit broken and sad, right? Yeah. Um, because that is increasing 
recently. We're still at work. Yeah, we're still at work. Yeah, so sometimes you'd be delivering, uh, like the treat would be, oh, you get to stay in the office uh, past five. Right. Uh, but you get delivery. So we'll buy, yes, you know, say you're a relatively paid, well-paid white collar office worker you know your hourly wage might be 20 pounds we'll buy you a 10 pound delivery meal if you stay in the office for another hour obviously that's you know that's only really working for one person there um and this whole structure of white collar immiseration and um, producing a crisis of social reproduction works with delivery because it's not just like a, a tray takeaway that you might get from a supermarket right like a chicken corn that you just stick in the micro for, yeah. for a minute it offers a high social capital solution so people get to like pretend that they're not doing what they're actually doing yeah. right the illusion you maintain is that you're an urban consumer having like an urban consumption experience and this is just part of your lifestyle your hip you know young lifestyle when reality is it's just a high cost takeaway service and i think for me, the fascinating thing, working both as an office worker and as a delivery worker at the same time, was that you were seeing two sides of this alliance, right? Where everyone I knew who worked uh, office jobs was basically coming out of university and finding that, oh, this is actually horrible. This is actually really hard. You know, we suffer harassment. We're working too many hours. Um, our opportunities for, like, advancement in terms of paying conditions are terrible. So this particular layer of the class who have been university educated and told the sky's the limit are coming up against the brute reality that actually, yeah. like, at this point in capitalism, not, you know, that middle class uh, escapism is less and less a reality. Yeah. Uh, and so I think with this crisis of social reproduction, you see two sides of a potential alliance between white-collar and blue-collar workers. Yeah, and so this whole sort of reorganization of work, right, is happening on so many levels. I, I really love the, the phrase about the, you know, stuff that your mom won't do for you anymore, because it, it does describe a reality of who is coming up with these brilliant app ideas. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I mean, some of these app ideas are really stupid. Other ones make a lot of sense because people are exhausted, people are broke, people need to get home at the end of the night when the tube stops running. Yeah. Um, you're talking about Uber. Um, and there is also this surplus workforce that needs either extras around the edges because, again, your office job isn't paying you enough to pay your student loans. Um, the way all of these pieces are fitting together, you know, you have, I don't love the term of the caryat, but like this sort of, you know, people who, again, we think of as the middle class because you have a college degree um, are no longer, in fact, middle class. And you are, in fact, being thrown into the same working conditions as for instance, the migrant workers from Brazil. Well, what we're seeing at the moment is an ongoing process of class polarization, right? right? Well, you know, the rich getting richer, the poor getting poorer. But even then, you know, a lot of the stable escape opportunities have just been cut right off. There is no escape trajectory out of late yeah. capitalism for the vast majority of people, right? Yes. And that process of class polarization is, I think, a fascinating one because we have to be alert to the fact. And I quote Poulantzas in there. There's a, a, a great um, argument he made in the 70s that the, the radicalization and non-radicalization of white-collar office workers would be yeah. a definitive factor of how the 1980s went. And I think mm. we all know how the 1980s yeah, went. Yeah, well, you know, the 1980s. <laughs> so we have to be alive for those possibilities for new solidarities. Right. I think politically it's really important that we articulate yeah. together, not just, you know, um, the platform workers have certain interests and you know platform right. workers are badly exploited but the platform workers have to be part of a workers movement yeah. which includes all different grades of workers and unites all these different class fractions into a common united front right, right? yeah so when we're talking about um, again we talked a little bit about the solution where people are just like oh you just need to make all these people into hourly employees and then that will solve the problem um, but there's also you know arguments in the other direction that say actually what we need is to make everybody like an app worker or people who say the apps should be cooperatives. Um, and you talk a little bit about the problems with all of these and why the solution has to be bigger and... Sexier. Involve more struggle. <laughs> in 
involve more struggle, perhaps? Um, so I think uh, the fascinating thing for me is that whilst I was working um, at Deliveroo, all these hot takes start to come out as to what like the future of platform work would be, right. uh, often from people who'd never done any platform work or talked to any platform workers. Um, because What do you uh, mean? Uh, <laughs> I have no idea why anybody would ever do any of that. Uh, yeah. So often from the liberal commentariat, right, right yeah. uh, who would come out with this particular set of ideas that, you know, either uh, this form of working is great or, you know, this form of working is awful and, and the solution is to revert back to kind of full employment model stuff. Yeah. Um, and I think for me, the really the solutions that workers come up with and the political lines that you can actually push with workers really deviated from the lines that are being pushed by mainstream pundits, right? Yeah. Because um, if you ask workers, you know, they don't want to go back to full employment. If you ask them, you know, does this feel like it gives you freedom? People wouldn't say it gave you freedom. Instead, the actual organic ideas that are coming out of these struggles is an amazing pamphlet written by an IWW-affiliated um, courier um, called Red Sky Thinking that I'd really encourage people yeah. to go and look at, um, which is fantastic in terms of articulating a, a vision for what these platforms could be used for under different social conditions. Right, because I think fundamentally the question at stake here is that there's no way of these platforms being really made to function for their workers under a capitalist mode of production. Right, uh, they're, they're not um, productive enough to actually there be a stable class compromise here. Uh, instead, we have to really look at a social transformation. Um, and one of the most popular offers for kind of social transformation is platform cooperativism, right? People often say that, you know, actually uh, the fixed capital involved in these platforms is relatively limited. It's just, it's just an app. Yeah. So what if we could replicate the app and the workers could work for themselves? Yeah. Now, um, for me, I see a few problems with this. Uh, first and foremost, the fact that competitive pressure has driven loads and loads of these apps into the ground before, and it will do so again. Um, and if workers form cooperatives and attempt to compete um, en masse with a company like Uber Eats, right. uh, Uber Eats will not hesitate a second in burying them under, you know, um, advertising, uh, under, you know, hugely subsidised deliveries um, for consumers and hugely inflated salaries for workers they will crush any competitor because they are fighting over an already very crowded market they're crushing each other all the time they will crush uh, a tiny little co-op with no venture capital backing even more it's a bug right it's an absolute bug that they can just um, smash into the windscreen of the the platform economy (laughs) right no it's just the the model of operating at a massive massive loss i was reading the uh the we work mm-hmm. proposal the other yeah, day for their yeah. going public, it's right? And it's just like you just look at this. You be like, you are just chucking money out the window. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You would set it on fire in a pile in fucking, you know, whatever. Times Square cash yes, bonfire exactly. would be more effective be than more we effective. work. <laughs> um, yeah, but it is fascinating, right? That that is how this works, and I think that that is part of the part of the story that nobody knows, right? Everybody assumes that like Uber makes money. Uber doesn't make money. Yeah. Uber loses money. Yeah. I mean, they have at least, you know, they have these aspirations to model. In some places, they might be profitable, but on a, on a mass scale, they have no returns and will not have returns for a long time, even by their own admission. Right. But even if everything were to go to plan and they were to automate, you know, everything they wanted to automate, it would take incredibly... I mean, let aside whether the change management process of automating something like food delivery, or, you know, whether that's even possible. Yeah. Um, even if they did that, it would still take an incredibly long time for them to actually put returns back. So I think... Um, when you're like talking about cooperativism in this competitive environment, one of the, the only options that would actually make cooperativism viable would be the control of investment, right. where you'd have to control how uh, these platforms could invest right. in order to create breathing space for a co-op to kind of grow, right? So you'd have to say, oh, you know, Uber Eats, you don't have control over your capital investment in this city. We're going to tell you how much you can spend, what prices you will offer, price regulation systems or whatever. At which point, if you're getting to the point where you have um, state intervention on the scale of price regulating platform deliveries... Yeah. 
you have the political will to do something much more exciting, which for me is platform expropriation, right? So I think we need to fundamentally be talking about the way in which these worker struggles are aiming towards a political horizon. Uh, platform workers are not just fighting for a better deal within the system as it exists. They are, in fact, I think there are in- indications that that pamphlet, Red Sky Thinking, is a perfect one of, of the forward horizon of where this struggle could go, which is to say the private ownership of these platforms is actually the fundamental problem that makes them non-functional yeah. because they're being used for private ends. But under um, workers' control, if actually owned by the people who do the work, right. we can see these platforms playing a much more um, exciting potential function, which is one where, you know, we talked earlier about social reproduction. Yeah. The way these platforms function is basically to, for a section of the class that can af- afford to outsource some of its social reproduction to expensive food delivery systems, it can offer kind of like an on-demand delivery service well that, that's indicative of a huge social use value there right the way we provide food to each other is one of the most fundamental ways in which we express like care right like if you're you know with your family what's the first thing you do you will have a big meal right yeah. it's fundamentally a human social relation is about looking after each other um, and there's a potential in platforms like this to do kind of some amazing things so if you had for instance you know public canteen services in the center of major cities you could do deliveries from that we have an aging population uh, in the UK, we used to have a thing called Meals on Wheels, which largely doesn't really exist anymore as a result yeah. of austerity. Yeah. But we have a huge care need for older people to be delivered food, right? Yeah. Now, uh, there's also a service in France. If you pay your postie a bit more, um, your uh, mailman, yeah. I think the, uh, the link yeah. is, <laughs> Yes, thank you. If you pay them a bit more, uh, they will go in and spend some time with the elderly relative and act as like a, a caregiver there. Um, the Post does that as like one of its major services now. That's so nice. It's really sweet. Um, American Post, uh, not American Posties, French Posties are the best. Um, they're very well organized as well. Um, but that kind of service could be entirely integrated into a platform like this, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, where you could be doing things like giving food to the elderly. People um, who go to their GP for mental health problems. We all know that one of the major struggles people experience with anxiety, depression, other mental health problems is reproducing themselves, is, is feeding themselves. You know, I've had depression where it's been really, really hard to leave the house. And if someone in that period was able to come and help you out like that, yeah. I mean, that's what a friend network does, right? right? When they're trying to put people back on their feet. Yeah. There's clearly a social use value here. You know, maternity leave. Why does maternity leave not include getting free pizza to your door for six months or something, right? You know, there are all these possible social use values that clearly can be capitalised on. And so I think when we're talking about, you know, what's the future for this stuff, just get rid entirely of the notion of, like, you know, we're going to re-regulate it and everything will be fine. It's complete crap. Like, re-regulating this stuff will not make it socially useful. But expropriating these platforms, saying to to Will Shu, you know, the CEO of Delivery, like, you've, you've, you've made enough money off the exploitation of others, we're actually going to take it completely out of your hands, your data centres don't belong to you, your data sets don't belong to you, we're going to put it under control of the software engineers and the drivers themselves, and then put it towards a, a fundamentally social good as the object of these platforms, I think we can see a political transformation. And that needs to be theorised as, you know, part of a, a wider struggle. You know, we can never see um, any particular sector where the exploitation is particularly bad is fighting on its own. You know, these, these workers are not fighting on their own. I, I kind of finished the book by talking um, bizarrely and slightly out of character for me about Karl Kautsky. Um, and <laughs> how, um, well, you know, we won't hold it against you. <laughs> so, like, how uh, Kautsky was a, an important um, uh, kind of social democratic figure in the, the European left uh, in the period um, before World War I. Yeah. Um, and he talks a lot about, uh, you know, um, the merger formula, right? right? The idea that the workers' movement and the social democratic movement could not be divided, right. um, and the struggle for the goals of one without the other was fundamentally never going to work, right? I think that's a very simple lesson that we could all relearn. Um, and fundamentally, you know, it's also uh, the red line that kind of goes through a lot of Lenin's thought, or, you know, every fundamental socialist thinker has really picked up on this idea that we can't struggle for political gains without economic gains, and we have to kind of infuse those together. 
So I think the politicization of these struggles is a really important task for us to do going forward. That, I have a note here about Bolsonaro because I've just been staring at pictures of the Amazon on fire. And oh, yeah. One of the more depressing bits, actually, in your book, because um, most of it's not depressing, yeah. is that you note that you know some of these same Brazilian workers who are organizing wildcat strikes are also tweeting about how they love Bolsonaro, yeah. which is incredibly depressing. Yeah. But um, I've heard that from also U.S. people who are organizing with Brazilian workers in the U.S. So. Yeah. Uh, it was... Uh, a strange moment when we start to get this flood of so obviously these these big WhatsApp groups in London you have 250 people on them or something and uh, people in the run of the election would just start spamming these memes of like I mean they don't it didn't make sense to me outside I don't speak Brazilian Portuguese yeah. it may come as a surprise um, but yes so this whole political context was a reminder of how fragmented a lot of this stuff is that whilst there are these positive political visions there this workforce is is not unified because there are very little um, there's very little opportunity for like discursive formation right? like workers can't really influence each other necessarily in the same way that if you did all work in the same uh, place and had regular union meetings um, the lightweight nature of their organisational structure does mean that some of these political conversations are harder to have and that I think potentially you know there's an important role for organising the community organising outside the workplace to kind of play that role in building um, political comprehension not just in the workplace but also around issues like housing and migration yeah and uh, I mean on you know, we talked about the first strike against deportations and these questions becoming um, visible. Um, it does seem to me that platform workers are, again, sort of perfectly positioned to be in community struggles in a lot of different yeah, ways. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I want to talk about, finally, to wrap up, to talk about the, the sort of last round of strikes and the organizing model that you write about that the IWW sort of came up with after the original model that they tried didn't work so well. Yeah. Um, so, I think what was really exciting, so this, this is a period that um, kind of came about in uh, October 2018, uh, just as I was actually getting to the end of writing the book. Yeah. Um, so I was getting down to like, I've got like a couple of uh, thousand words left to play around with, I'm kind of finishing everything out, I'm like, shall I insert arguments back up the manuscript, and then suddenly this huge wave of struggle breaks out, we're like, okay, fine, that's the final chapter sorted. Um, and it was really about kind of writing in the moment as these struggles were kicking off because we had the first national strikes, right? Which if you consider the progression from uh, a couple of hundred workers uh, kicking off in London in 2016, by 2018 we're already talking about national organisation, but you have cities, you know, like everywhere. Uh, there were even during this period uh, strikes going on in places like Worthing, which I mean no American listener will ever have heard of Worthing. It's just, it's, just, it's, it's literally, it's a town, it's not even a city, a town just down the coast from Brighton. Right, where nothing political really happens in Worthing apart from like Labour Party meetings of like 15 people, right? Um, so this profound spread of this struggle um, really kicked off and over the summer of 2018 we had struggle after struggle kind of bouncing off one another, yeah. right? And for the first time we had, um, we had a strike in London by Uber Eats workers and the next day workers on Plymouth went on strike. Kind of, and they were also working for Uber Eats. So organically, the circulation of struggle was going on. And the IWW and the IWGB played a, a fundamental role in trying to coordinate that and spread that. Um, then they, they also formed an alliance um, with uh, Unite and the Baker's Food and Allied Workers Union, um, who were organizing TGI Friday workers and uh, McDonald's and Weatherspoons workers, um, all in the hospitality industry. Um, and they, they managed to call a coordinated day of strike action, which was only possible because uh, the, the fact that... Um, 
delivering platform workers are not formally employed means they can be really flexible. They don't have to right. give like the legal balloting notice they would have to otherwise. Right. So that flexibility allowed us to then have a coordinated day of strike action in October, which was then heavily supported by the Labour Party. So you had um, John McDonnell, um, or Don McDonnell, um, giving a speech um, in Parliament Square to a group of about 500, not Parliament Square, uh, Leicester Square, to a group of about 500 workers talking about, you know, fundamentally how the Labour Party was in, behind the struggle, how, you know, the objectives were shared, um, and giving a political articulation to what had previously appeared to be an isolated small struggle of, of small groups of, of workers who were kind of written off um, as even having any potential power. So I think it's political development, which then, you know, went even further. We ended up with um, Uber taxi drivers getting involved as well uh, and having their first national strike a couple of weeks later. This period of development, I think, really demonstrated some of the potential political capacity that exists in platform worker struggles and how they can act as a synthetic part of a wider um, organising struggle. Uh, the IWW's model uh, that they use to kind of bring us to this point of national strike action I think is an instructive example of how you do really good organising, which is they, they had this attempt to organise workers um, earlier in, in uh, 2017. It didn't really, didn't really come off um, because the kind of strategy was designed abstractly on the basis of previous campaigns and not on the, the experiences of workers actually in the struggle. That didn't work, and so that, to their great credit, they went back to the drawing board and said, right, we're not going to give up, we're going to try something else, right? And what followed was a period of what I call works inquiry, right? Um, which is basically studying work from the perspective of workers in order to understand how you can organise against it. Um, and through lots of conversations and through lots of contact building, they began to develop a model whereby um, they basically rely on these WhatsApp groups to do much more work than they had done previously. And they'd change their demands from the regularisation of employment status onto things like uh, £5 a drop was their fundamental demand. Um, and this organising process then led us to these new high points because it was directly modelled on the experience of work. And I think that's a really valuable lesson for us, you know, when we're organising elsewhere as, you know, militants in all kinds of different workplaces, is that you've got to design the model of organising you're using to the reality of the workplace you confront, the opportunities for leverage, the opportunities for communication, the existing informal work groups, who works with who. That kind of mapping is a fundamental part of how you actually get to the point of class power. Right. And then we expropriate the platforms. Expropriate the platforms, indeed. <laughs> I'm, the people's delivery is going to deliver an excellent pizza. <laughs> and that was Callum Kent talking about his new book, Writing for Deliveroo. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it's time for Argo Wish I'd Written That, where we talk about the things that we liked but did not write. My pick for this episode is The Path to Climate Justice Runs Through the UAW Strike by a friend of the podcast, Jane McAlevey. You might have noticed that there were not one but two major strike actions taking place this month. First, there was the UAW strike, of course, which led nearly 50,000 workers to down their tools nationwide. Second, there was the climate strike, a very different kind of direct action, with millions of children and other activists not withholding their labor per se, but skipping school to go fight for the environment. For a while, the two seemed to be operating in two parallel universes. One was an emblem of an industry that is now on the decline, but rose out of the country's obsession with fossil fuels. The other action represented the vanguard of the global climate justice movement, as young people took to the streets to condemn world leaders for failing to act on climate change. So it might have come as a surprise to many when young climate activists of the Sunrise Movement tweeted in support for the GM strikers. But environmental organizer turned union organizer Jane McLevy saw the connection. She wrote, 
Quote, Sunrise has been vocal in its support for the employees walking the picket lines at General Motors, but nary a word has been heard from most of the big environmental groups. Yet the number one priority for every organized group supporting bold climate solutions has to be winning a settlement that is good for auto workers, one that guarantees that any transition to the electric-oriented jobs in the GM plants will preserve the workers' union contract, create permanent jobs, and offer wages and benefits of the same standard as those enjoyed by the full-time GM workers before the Great Recession. Unquote. She's referring to the recent history of GM and its big bailout. A decade ago, GM was rescued from total financial collapse by federal largesse, and that also involved major concessions from workers. Today, the workforce is still suffering from stagnant wages in a two-tier system that leaves newer hires struggling to get by, and yet the company is turning huge profits. Now, from an environmental perspective, you might question the wisdom of injecting a fossil fuel-dependent industry with taxpayer dollars, but there was actually one environmental string attached to that auto bailout. The automakers agreed to higher fuel efficiency standards, which help lower emissions. Now that GM is profitable again, the company owes both its workers and the general public and the environment a meaningful return on their investment. McAlevey writes, quote, every dime of that money, plus whatever supplemental funds are needed, should be channeled into helping the auto workers maintain their employment at their current rates of pay, whether the plants remain open for building electric power cars, small trucks, or hell, buses or trains. We'll need all of those in the immediate future. What we don't need is more destruction of family and community supporting jobs. Unquote. In the debate over the Green New Deal, a lot of naysayers question whether people would really be willing to make the necessary sacrifices in terms of jobs or the material comforts of our consumerist lifestyles. Advocates of the Green New Deal, however, are keen to point to the concept of a just transition, the policy approach that promotes industrial transformation while also providing strong safeguards for workers, jobs, and communities. There have so far been few examples of just transition on such a large scale, however. Yet the crisis in the auto industry could be a laboratory for such ideas. GM, after all, has actually touted its own plans to ramp up its electric car production. But for GM's cost-cutting agenda, this is coming at the cost of shutting down old plants. What if automakers could be compelled to pledge not to pursue an environmental agenda on the backs of workers? I recall my conversation with GM worker Sean Crawford a couple of weeks ago for the last episode of Belabored, in which he said he would like to see a Green New Deal that truly worked for his community in Flint, Michigan. He didn't care so much what he was building, it could be an SUV or an electric bus or solar panels, as long as they had a secure, sustainable livelihood. Now that GM workers are on the picket line and young climate strikers are creating a virtual picket line around the globe, we've seen that people everywhere are willing to stop participating in a system that doesn't guarantee them a real future and ultimately threatens them with existential destruction. Climate activists fear the threat of planetary meltdown, while auto workers see their careers and communities disintegrating into a post-industrial wasteland. Yet tackling the threat of planetary meltdown and the crisis of inequality altogether is not simply a nice idea. It's the only comprehensive response to the social catastrophe that capitalism has wrought. Crawford's own hometown of Flint, Michigan, which is still suffering the after-effects of massive environmental contamination, is a case study of what happens when corporate greed and a lack of democratic governance destroy both the social infrastructure and the environmental health of a community. Healing these communities economically and environmentally is critical. In our current political climate, the Green New Deal is nowhere near becoming the law of the land, but there are crisis points in many of our communities where we have a choice of whether to stick with the status quo or begin to reinvent the way we work and the way we live. A strike is one of those crisis points, and unlike other crisis points such as natural disaster, a labor action puts workers front and center in the public conversation on what kind of change is necessary and just. Whatever demands labor brings to the table, a healthy, inclusive future for all has to be part of that bargain.
We've briefly before covered the struggle within the Service Employees International Union and its staff union, the Office and Professional Employees International Union Local 2. The staff union took a strike vote last spring after months of bargaining with SEIU had gone nowhere, and they have been building towards that possible strike ever since. Hamilton Nolan at Splinter has a piece up on the subject, talking to some of the union staffers. The piece is titled, The SEIU's Nasty Fight with Its Own Staff Union, and in it, he delves into some of the thorny questions that are raised when the union is also the boss. The issue at the heart of the fight, Nolan explains, is layoff protections. For union staff, this is particularly important because, Nolan writes, the reality is that for those working at SEIU, layoff protection is more a basic survival staple than a luxury. That's because, unlike in standard private sector jobs, the SEIU has a convention every four years which inevitably results in new plans, new campaigns, and a reorganization of the union's goals. As a result of that, like clockwork, you can count on massive layoffs, says David Hoskins, an SEIU research analyst who serves as the chief shop steward for Local 2. This provision is rooted in that history and is a way to ensure that people are not just tossed aside. Without layoff protections, the idea of building a full career at SEIU headquarters is hopeless, end quote. The current offer from SEIU, Nolan writes, is to grandfather in layoff protections for current employees, but no longer offer them to new employees, effectively creating, he notes, the kind of two-tier contract that unions so regularly battle to avoid. Outsourcing, too, is an issue for the staff, who see it as a way to erode staff jobs. The use of outside communications consulting firms like Berlin Rosen costs a lot of money, but it also runs on relatively short-term contracts, meaning fewer full-time in-house staffers who might be members of the staff union. But of course, the problem is that the SEIU staff also believe in the mission of the union, and that presents a challenge, one that, of course, our regular listeners know is part of the subject of my next book. As Nolan writes, quote, Now the members of Local 2 find themselves facing an extremely uncomfortable choice to allow themselves to be squeezed past the point of reason by their employer or to play hardball and risk damaging the reputation of an organization that they all believe in, end quote. Christy Finelli, a program specialist and active Local 2 member who's been with SEIU nearly 12 years, tells Nolan, quote, It's very embarrassing to me for an organization I have given so much of my life to and that I believe in so much, she says. We thought at a certain point they would feel some shame within the labor community, and we started. We tried starting this out within the labor community, but they seem to be proud almost at this point of breaking their staff union, end quote. The challenge, Nolan writes, is, quote, the quandary of advocating for their own union without damaging the union they work for, end quote. It's the challenge of mission-driven workers everywhere. You take the job in order to do what motivates you, to be part of a struggle in which you fiercely believe, only to find out that you are subject to working conditions that make you compromise yourself. With unions, it is often tempting to pit the interests of staffers against the interests of union members, but it's important to note that even if you don't work for a for-profit company, the tactics and structures of exploitation often look and feel the same. SEIU's election year agenda is titled Unions for All, and that's a goal worth aspiring to. Separating off the staff from the people they represent, as if one set of workers can afford not to make demands for themselves, is unwittingly replicating the same tactic forced on those members, particularly at a union like SEIU that represents a lot of healthcare workers, saying that, in essence, their mission is too important for them to have needs. That's all we have time for this week. Stay tuned for more on the gig economy, care worker organizing, and definitely much more on the GM strike and the Chicago teachers. Thank you again to Dissent for hosting us, to Natasha Lewis for editing us and making us sound good every week. 
Thanks to you for listening. And even more thanks to you if you've rated us on iTunes, shared us with your friends, promoted us on Twitter or Facebook, or generally propagandized on our behalf. And an extra special thanks to our belabored sustaining members. Just $5 a month gets you a belabored tote bag. We also have some new Descent t-shirts if you sign up to be a Solidarity subscriber to the magazine. You can find out about all of that at descentmagazine.org slash belabored dash membership. You can, as always, email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org if you are a striking auto worker or delivery rider, graduate employee, or a staff union member. You can tweet at us, too, at hashtag belabored. We'll be back in two weeks. Solidarity. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored. <laughs>